goal here is to um, to just make room, as we've noticed, a, a, a increase in desire to be here with us on Sunday mornings, and so that'll give us room uh, with two services to have everyone who wants to be with us. As I was uh, preparing for this particular sermon this morning, this communion service, I was doing some home renovations and I dropped uh, something on my finger and you can still see it's a little swollen and it hurts a little bit. Um, No big deal, it'll be fine in a couple of weeks or probably a couple of days. Um, But it just reminded me of something that happens to all of us from time to time and that is from time to time we have accidents or or, we're in, or we find ourselves in danger. I don't know if you've had this experience. Have you ever found yourself on the top of a tall tower with someone strapping you into a harness? And you thought, uh, maybe this wasn't a good idea. I think I'm going to die. I've been there. Uh, prob- I, by your laughter, I imagine most of you have been there at one time or another. And others of you are just like, yeah, why isn't it taller? Uh, but uh, we, we, have different, we have different levels of, of, uh, of what we're willing to accept in terms of risk in our life. Uh, but I might be the only one, but I suspect not, who's found yourself driving down the road and suddenly it all flashes through your mind. Uh, if my tire catches that slush and I go in the ditch and roll over, how long would it take me to crawl from the field in those trees up onto the road and wave for health with two broken legs and broken ribs? And You ever thought those thoughts? Okay, maybe I'm a weird one. But anyways, let's, let's have a different question. Ever had that experience? Not, per, not that particular one, but we've all had experiences where our physical body has... has um, has been injured. And when that happens, we call it a tragedy. Uh, It's not expected. It's not what we want. It's not what we planned. But it happens sometimes, and sometimes worse, and sometimes better. And the pain of that experience is something that then in the future we have to deal with. And it's tragic, because it's not, it seems unfair. But there's another experience that many of you have had. And if you haven't, I'm sure you know someone who has. And it's an experience where, where you, you, in Wainwright, you probably get in your car, probably with someone else. And you begin to drive towards a location. And you might stop and visit someone along the way. Uh, and then you might stop at your favorite restaurant before you get there because you're not going to have that food for a while. And then uh, you, you get to that location and you voluntarily, under your own free will, walk in and somebody in that place wounds your body. Have you ever had that experience? And we call it a blessing. We call it a blessing. I have a, a family member who had a, a part of their collarbone removed, permanent, permanently injured. Uh, and and the uh, and and she walked in of her own free will to have someone do that to her. Um, if that happened in any other circumstances, we we'd call it a high crime. It's odd, isn't it? What's the difference? Why do we call one invasion of our body a tragedy, 
and the other a blessing. You all know the answer, don't you? We call the operation a blessing because of the hope of a benefit. Now, every operation has a different level of certainty. Uh, the doctor will tell you, well, there's a, there's a 99% chance that this operation is going to benefit you. Or there's an 85% chance that, that it'll, it'll benefit you. Or, or there's a 3% chance that you won't come out of it better than you went in. Whatever it is. And, and then we have to decide, are we going to walk in there, given what we know about, about the, the operation? But most of the time in our experience, the operation is often successful and we come away thinking, what a blessing to have a medical system that can help us in these ways. But in both cases, the tragedy and the blessing, um, it's a physical uh, altercation of our bodies, of our body's integrity uh, that happens. But we interpret it differently. We experience it differently. Uh, and, and it's because of the hope. It's because we have the... The, the hope of that future benefit that we voluntarily go through the suffering and the healing that has to happen. So keep that in mind as I introduce uh, this year's Easter meditations. We're going to be on a, a journey here uh, from today on through Easter, the path to the cross. Now today I'm going to look at the book, book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and in succeeding Sundays I'm going to be looking at different things but, but this morning, it's the, it's the Gospel of Luke. And, and I think for many people, Luke is our favorite. Uh, maybe you haven't really thought about it too much. But when you think, for example, about the Christmas story, I pretty much expect that most of you are thinking of Luke. Uh, we, we, Luke is where we have the shepherds. Luke is where we have, we have the, the sheep and the stable and the no room in the inn and the angels in the sky. All of our favorite bits about about Easter. And then if we want to be really accurate, we'll kind of, we'll kind of insert a couple of things from Matthew. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe the Magi or Joseph's dreams. We, but we don't usually insert Luke, one piece of Luke into Matthew. We usually use Matthew as our template and then insert little bits from other places, whether it's the Psalms and the prophets or, or, or Matthew or other places. And there's a reason for that. Uh, Luke writes his gospel in a very particular way and it's very relatable. He, he tells the common story of the downtrodden people, people we can identify with, more so than the other Gospels. He includes more healings. He includes more interactions with ordinary people than, than the other Gospels. And uh, so it, it kind of resonates with us in that way. But in his Gospel, Luke uses a very deliberate plot device. Now when I say plot device, I don't mean fiction. I mean he tells the story in a certain way and he uses a repetition that reminds us where the story's going. So starting with the Christmas story, starting with the incarnation, Jesus, the Son of God, coming to earth, God in human form, uh, God-man, all that theological stuff we, we just love to read about in Luke because it's so, so personable, so relatable. He builds up from there to the point where Jesus is, is popular in the population, particularly in Galilee. And that takes eight chapters. But he takes a turn in chapter 9 that then def defines the rest of the story. And, and that, that turn is right here in chapter 9 and uh, verse 51. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out 
for Jerusalem. And that signifies a plot change. That signifies, okay, from here on till the end of the gospel, that's what the story's about. This, uh, this reasoning goes on to the end. Uh, and notice what's, what's, what's maybe notable about this is he's, he doesn't say, as the time drew near for Jesus to die or for him to suffer or even to be raised from the dead. He's pointing beyond that to the ascension when he will be lifted from this earth into God's full presence and experience eternal joy and happiness at that point. When the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus set his resolve. He is going to go there. And Luke reminds us of this throughout the rest of the narrative. So a few chapters later, in chapter 13, we have this. In chapter 13, verse 22, Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he went, always pressing on towards Jerusalem. Now, in between chapter 9 and chapter 13, there's all kinds of stories that fill up the pages. Stories of healings, parables being told, meetings with different kinds of people. And it's all, it's all in this very personal way that Luke writes. Uh, he wants us to know that all of these things are happening, but they're not just random experiences of Jesus' life. They're happening on the way. He hasn't changed his mind. He hasn't lost his focus. He hasn't stopped his resolve. He is still pressing on towards Jerusalem. Many things are happening as he goes. uh, But that's what this story is about. He's on his way. He's pressing on. It's It's not like, well, if I get there, it'll be okay. If I don't, no. Always pressing on. His resolve hasn't faltered. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Uh as the time draws near for his ascension. In uh, chapter 17, we're reminded again, again, many things happen in between, but in 17 we read this in, in, uh, I didn't write the verse down, one of those verses. Um, As Jesus continued on towards Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. So here, uh, he's continuing on, and, and he's not just continuing on randomly. His resolve was set in chapter 9. He's continuing on to, towards Jerusalem. But this, uh, this point in the story um, sets an interesting um, challenge for, for me, challenge for us. I'm not, I haven't read the stuff around it, which you can do uh, on your own time. Uh, but there's there's a switch in the plot in the storyline, not in the plot, because he's still pressing on towards Jerusalem. But what's happened here is is it, if you read the story from chapter nine on down, he's in Galilee in chapter nine when he resolves to go to Jerusalem, and he goes down into Samaria. And many of these stories happen in Samaria. But as he continues down the direct route from Galilee to Jerusalem through Samaria, he he encounters severe opposition. And he turns course. Now it's unclear whether he backtracks all the way back to Galilee and then goes across to the Jordan River and then goes down or whether he kind of sidetracks. It's unclear what happens. But here we have him at the border between Galilee and Samaria, which is where he started. Now, I don't know about you, but I suspect if I was in that story 
And God told me, or I thought God told me to go to Jerusalem, and hard things were going to happen there. And I start going, and I get stopped, and I can't go any further, and I have to backtrack to the place where I started. Guess what I'd probably say? Well, I thought I had it right, but I guess God closed the door. It's not His will after all. Does that sound familiar? Like something I'd do? Like something you might do? But Luke reminds us here, even though his course has changed, his, 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 uh, d- the way in which he's getting there has to change, he still says, Jesus continued on towards Jerusalem. Even as he was walking backwards the way he had already come, he was still on the way. His resolve had not faltered. His knowledge of where he was going, his determination to get there at the right time had not changed. He continued by another road. When the door closed in front of him, between him and where God was calling him to be, he continued by another road. He found a way to get there. That's challenging for me, uh, perhaps for you as well. But as he gets closer then, in, ver- in chapter 18, he, he, for the first time, according to, to Luke's telling of the story, uh, tells his disciples what's actually happening. They know they're on their way to Jerusalem and they don't want to go because they know it's dangerous there for Jesus and Jesus' disciples. They know the plot to kill Jesus is strong and building steam and, and becoming uh, impossible to avoid. So they don't want to go to Jerusalem, but he's going there anyways. Here's what he says to them in chapter 18, verse 31. Taking the twelve disciples aside, Jesus said, Listen, we're going to Jerusalem. It sounds like a parent to a child, right? I know you don't want to go there, but listen, we're going. Wagging his finger, I can imagine. I don't know, maybe he didn't do that. But listen, we're going to, up to Jerusalem where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. And our minds immediately go back into Isaiah, the suffering servant, and Daniel, and some of these things. And, and, and uh, it's, not a, it's not a happy picture. All that the prophets predicted would, will come true. He will be handed over to the Romans. And he will be mocked, treated with shamefully, and spit upon. They will flog him with a whip and kill him. But on the third day he will rise again. He's talking about himself. And he's resolved to go there even though he knows this is what's in front of him. But they didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words was hidden from them. And they failed to grasp what he was talking about. So now we find out what Jesus is doing here is in some way similar to that imaginary trip to the doctor's office, to the operating room. We know what's in front. We know it's going to hurt. We know there's going to be recovery. We know that. But, but there's a hope we have for the benefit that comes after. And Jesus is telling him, I know All that the prophets said about me is going to happen in Jerusalem. But as we go all the way back to chapter 9, the time is drawing near for my ascension into heaven. And these things must first occur. They They failed to grasp it. I wonder if they just didn't want to admit it. If they just didn't want to uh, have those things happen. 
It's a difficult journey. But now as they approach Jerusalem, something changes. Something different happens. Uh, Normally, all the way through the story, Jesus has been prone to downplay things. When he heals someone, he says, don't tell anyone. When, when, when the crowds get too big, he, he moves away. When, when, the, when the, the plot to, to do something to him, to eliminate him, to kill him, becomes strong, he, he goes across the, the water to someplace safe, or he melts into the crowds and disappears, or he travels into another political jurisdiction where they can't get him. Uh, all of these things we observe in the Gospels again and again. But now as he approaches Jerusalem for this last time, this is what we read. After telling them this story, if you're curious about that, read Luke 19, you'll find out which story. Jesus went on towards Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. He's close now. He's almost there. And they're holding back. They're nervous. They know that this might not end well. But even when his closest support falls back, his resolve does not falter. He doesn't say, oh, I better take time to get my disciples up here in front of me to, you know, be a buffer in front of me. Or, No, he goes on ahead of them. They're not far, as we find out as the story continues. They're not far at all. They, they, keep, they keep up. But he walks even ahead of his disciples now. And this is the beginning. This, this Luke chapter 19, verse 28, where he walks ahead, this is the beginning of the story of Palm Sunday. He's going to enter Jerusalem not by a, quietly, by a different route, not, not in a way that, that doesn't draw attention. He's going to do something he's never done before. He's going to draw attention to himself. He's always humble. He's always... He's always, um, all the stories, he, I mean, he doesn't mind being the center of attention and telling and teaching the crowds and stuff like that, but it's clearly not what he's all about. And here, as he, as he goes on now, actually at Jerusalem, this is the beginning in Luke 19 here of the story where he gets on a colt and he rides in and the, and the crowds cheer saying, here, we, here is the king of the Jews and, and, and they, they put their cloaks down and, and, and it's, a, it's a big spectacle and it can't possibly have been missed by either the Jewish authorities who would say if he's claiming to be king, he's claiming to be Messiah and we can't accept him as Messiah, we have to eliminate him. And the Roman authorities are, are, would, would see him coming in with the crowds cheering like that and say, well, there can be no king other than Caesar, so we've got to keep our eye on this man and maybe, maybe we've got to do something here. Now, I don't know. The gospel doesn't say if Jesus deliberately did that to get the attention of the authorities so things would unfold the, the way they unfold. That's speculation whether he did or not. But nevertheless, this is what happens. He went ahead and rode into Jerusalem in this way. And the crowds cheered for a moment, first uh, hailing him, and just a short time later, crucify him. He went on towards Jerusalem, even knowing what was about to happen. Knowing it would be suffering. Knowing it would be injustice. Knowing he would be beaten. Knowing he would die. But, more importantly, knowing he would rise, defeating death and sin and ascend into eternal joy. When the doctor tells me 
come to the room, I'm going to cut into you. You've got a 98.5% chance of being better off afterwards than before. That's not what this is. The, the chances of success are 100%. This is God walking into Jerusalem. He will not fail when he sets his resolve. To interpret this today, I want to look at Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down and especially the sin that so easily trips us up. I'll give you homework. Read Hebrews chapter 11, because whenever you see a therefore, you know that it, it's important to know what comes just before, because what comes after the therefore isn't going to happen if what comes before doesn't make sense without the before. But, but, but I can tell you, and you can read it for yourself, He's referring to the, the, the chapter 11, often called the uh, faith chapter in our Bibles, of all the people, Old Testament and New Testament, who have suffered and even been put to death for their faith. So that's the cloud of witnesses. All those who, like Jesus, had resolved to finish in faith even though it caused hardship. So therefore, because of this huge cloud of witnesses, what's, what happens to me as I, as I understand myself as another person in this, in this journey of faith, this path towards the cross? Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Let us set our resolve. Let us have steel nerves. And continue walking even when the door seems closed. Let us resolve. And, and let us remove. And that's what the path uh, I seek to lead you on this Easter. This Sunday and then consecutively through to Easter. To, to look at Jesus and see what, what did he remove in order to follow this path with resolve. What did he give up? What did he put aside in order to not be tripped up and stopped along the way. And that's going to be our, our Easter theme, to look at Jesus and how he walked and then think about and consider how we would walk. But let's move on in the, in the chapter here in, in the next verse, or the next sentence. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. And that tells us that it's it's expected to be a long race. You don't need an endurance for a sprint. It's expected to be a long race with many different kinds of joys and suffering along the way. As we read Jesus' story, even on the way to Jerusalem, there's miracles, there's times of great celebration, there's times of happiness with himself and his disciples in relationship, there's times of teaching and building in, there's, there, there's, there's hard times and good times. So, so there's many things along the way but it's going to require endurance. It's going to re require a resolve that doesn't falter, that continues through to the end. And he calls us to follow him on this race. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. 
How do we how do we do how do we have the resolve even when things get hard? By keeping our eyes on Jesus and not on other things. And that's what I think the challenge is going to be for you and I as we walk this path towards Easter this year. What things are taking my eyes off Jesus? And some of them might be good things. Some of them might be things that you value very highly. That you've never considered before might need to be removed. So that's challenging. But we know that Jesus did this. We, we, and we do it not by, by keeping our eyes on ourselves, but by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Remember when they got to Jerusalem, it says Jesus went ahead. The disciples couldn't take the lead anymore. But they kept their eyes on Jesus and they got there. They followed. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. He's been there. He's done that. He's won already. He has already perfected the faith. And it's up to us if we will keep our eyes on on him and remove the things that distract us in order that we might finish with him. He's already shown us the way. He's shown us how to go through life with integrity and through death with resolve to resurrection in glory. And he's promised that path for us. He did it, it says, for a reason. Because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Because of the joy. When we go to the doctor, the doctor can't promise us joy. Might be able to promise us with a fairly high degree of certainty, blessing, physical healing, health, maybe for a time. But something else is going to come along. And we'll suffer again. But Jesus did it for joy. A much higher plane than than just blessing. Joy that awaited him to be at the right hand of God. And we too have that that, uh, joy in front of us. One of the things that distracts us is when we... We set our... our, When we we say, I'm going to resolve to get through this difficulty for the blessing I'll get in this life. And it never quite balances out. The blessing doesn't quite seem to be enough to compensate for the suffering. But if you add to the scale, not just the blessing in this life, because that's real, but the joy of eternity with God, the new heaven and the new earth, then the scale balances out in far outweighs on the side of taking this path. Christianity is not a faith that removes all suffering or promises to. It's a faith that is sure of the hope that is set before us for those who follow our Lord and Savior on the path He took. And we can't avoid the reality that the path He took was the path to the cross. 
And if we would be his followers, we cannot avoid it. The next, uh, this Sunday and the next three, uh, we're going to follow this path a little bit in, in some of its places. Uh, each Sunday, we're going to have two scriptures and a prayer uh, read by members of our congregation. And then on, on, uh, good, on good Friday, we're going to open up the church building here for, for probably, I don't know, we haven't made all the plans yet, but probably about four hours. And we're going to have prayer stations. And at each of the prayer stations will be the readings and the prayers of each of the Sundays leading up to it. So you're going to hear them on Sunday. And then if you come on Good Friday, uh, there'll be, there'll be, you'll just, we're not going to probably put a, I don't think we're going to put a registration on the website, but there'll be time for you to space yourself out so we're not too many people in here at any one given time. And just take some time on Good Friday to come to the church and, and do that prayer walk, the path to the cross. It'll be the same scriptures, the same prayers that you've had in the four Sundays leading up to that Good Friday service. And then uh, on Easter Sunday, we will celebrate the joy that is the reward of this path.